0: The year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories.
1: Hey there, this is Josh Ursum, and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the Choir Boys and their classic hit, Run to Paradise. Our special guest is the band's frontman, Mark Gable. The Choir Boys formed in the late 70s and are one of the best bands that typify pub rock. They've gone on to become one of the most melodic hard-rocking bands ever produced in Australia. All up, the Choir Boys have released eight studio albums and they're still rocking today. The band's original lineup was Mark Gable vocals and guitar, Ian Holm on bass, lead guitarist Brad Carr and drummer Lindsay Tevitt. Formed on Sydney's Northern Beaches, a place best known for its surf, sun and sand and it's also home to the Manly Eagles rugby league team. While geographically it's only located about 20 kilometres from Sydney CBD, the area's laid back lifestyle is worlds away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Some of Australia's most successful bands have come from the peninsula, most notably Midnight Oil and In Excess.
2: Well, yeah, there was uh, also moving pictures and uh, matte finish, you know, that um, came out at, at that time from the northern beaches, and it was. It was because they they still call it the Insula Peninsula um, because, and I even met someone or I met someone who met someone who had lived there his whole life into his 60s and never been across the bridge, the Spit Bridge. (laughs) Not the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but the Spit Bridge. And so, you know, as a consequence, I think you have this – this ethos, well, you know, what would you call it? It's culture of sunshine, of beaches, of uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed people who um, were healthy, were young, were vibrant. Um, coming out of the uh, out of the sixties and then into the seventies was really the prominence of, um, of of the culture on the northern beaches. Oh, and I forgot to mention one of my all-time favorite bands, uh, Tim and Shud, You know, which were they were just so influential, an incredible band. And uh, you, you had this culture that was so intense, um, you know, like down the beach and, you know, board shorts and the girls in bikinis and, and the, just the whole atmosphere of it. And then uh, music that started to talk about whatever it is that we were going through. And usually it was good stuff. And it really wasn't until um, Midnight Oil came along that then it started to become politically analytical and started to look at the problems in Australia. Um, but that was more later in the piece. So it, it was just an incredible place to grow up and an incredible place to make music. Look, there were so many venues. You know, you had obviously the Royal Antler Hotel and, um, you know, we had a residency there. Uh, and can you believe it, and I think it was a Thursday night or a Tuesday night or something, um, you had 1066 Wine Bar at Coleroy. Uh You had the D.Y. Hotel, Manly Hotel, Manly Vale, um, and then there were uh, the gigs out at um, Avalon and all the rest of it, which names escaped me just at the moment, um, and the Monerville Bop, which was just a community hall where they, in the, in the 60s going into the 70s, they used to have bands performing there every Saturday night. Uh, and it was it was just you know anything from seeing Billy Thorpe to uh, you know whatever band that would come up, you know um, Campact from Melbourne, you know, and all these amazing bands that were just starting to grow around the time. I mean obviously this was happening everywhere in Australia, but it was intrinsic to the northern beaches, right? And of course, you had ACDC and Burwood in the middle of Sydney or, you know, the Western Suburbs, and I, you know, I remember even thinking back then, oh, you know, the bands in the Western Suburbs are really heavy, man. They'd, like, they'd beat you up and eat you, you know, <laughs> and it was like, you know, we'd try and avoid doing gigs there, though we did, um, but, you know, because they thought it was so tough. And then I remember the first time I went to Newcastle, I was terrified, right, you know, just because so, I hear all this stuff about Newcastle in a band that I was in in the 70s, and we went up there and stayed the night, you know, and I was just scared, you know, shitless of what, what might happen. Of course, nothing did happen, right? but it was um, it's amazing how we saw the rest of Australia as different parts of the world.
1: The choir boy's name is etched into the great Australian songbook and they hold their own place in our music history. When it came to naming the band, Mark carried on a fine Aussie tradition.
2: There was the angels, there was the saints, there was um, the church, and, um, you know, I thought that uh, the religious theme obviously works, let's carry it on. Um, and so it was uh, partly that, but it was also due to the guys in the band, particularly Brad Carr, our original guitarist, who was an astonishing guitar player. I'm talking about probably, without a doubt, one of the best in the world. It was incredible, t- such an individual. But he was and still is, and even though he's not in the band, he's a total eccentric, and he, um, he was such a rat bag, right? But he was so lovable on one hand, and then he would do the most horrendous things um, on the other. And so it reminded me of, like, you know, the great analogy of, you know, I'm a choir boy most of the time, but then you know, then I'm not, right? And so that kind of helped it out a little, and so it kind of made sense.
1: After recording the Choir Boy's first demo tape, Mark received one of those life-changing phone calls.
2: We did some demos um, on my four-track at home and uh, put it on a cassette and it was at the behest of Herm Kovac, who was the um, uh, whose real name is Kovacius apparently, apparently um, uh, the drummer from TMG, he said to me, you know, are you doing a demo? I said, yeah, we're in the process of doing a demo. I said, well, give me the tape when you've done And I go, okay, cool. I never even thought about it. Um, And I put my name on it, you know, number, right. And then the phone rings and I'm talking about a green thing with dials on it, right, plastic thing. (laughs) And I pick it up and it's like I go, hello, and it goes, yeah, Mark, it's George Young here, right. And I go, holy cow, (laughs) right. One of my heroes is on the phone talking to me. And it was bloody George Young, the brother of Angus and Malcolm Young. And it it was like one of the greatest songwriters Australia's ever seen. And his um, partner, Harry Vander, it was just an astonishing moment. And I I still remember it was a beautiful day like today is. Uh, I was living at Clairville on the northern beaches and looking out over the water. Yeah, no, I only had a bed set, but, you know, it was like, it still had a good view, and I was like thinking, well, wow, life's pretty good." <laughs> and so we got together with George, but he just wanted me. He wasn't interested. They weren't interested in the band. And I said, "Well, look, I got a band, and I, you know, I want to do the band." And he goes, "You know, give me more time, and we'll get some more songs together, and then see where it goes from there." And I did that, or we did that, and then we came back, and um, you know, away we went. You know, but we were there for wow, 78, 77, 78 to 85, you know, so we were there for a long time and it was just the most amazing establishment, you know, and full of talented people and the history that came out of there. I mean, you're talking, you know, you are talking, uh, you know, Vander and Young, of course, and you're talking Easy Beats in the early days and then John Paul Young, you know, and, and William Shakespeare, you know, uh, and then of course ACDC Rose Tattoo the Angels, you know, and Choir Boys. Um, and so there was a big history of uh, of great music and great um, ethos that came out of that place. It was just astonishing.
1: Joining Alberts and working with Vander and Young set the choir boys on the right path. With AC D C the Ted Murray gang, Rose Tattoo and the Angels, all in Albert's illustrious stable of bands. The choir boys undertook an apprenticeship of sorts, learning from the very best in the business.
2: Oh, yeah, look, it, it really was. And it was like um, to, like I say, I really admired George Young and Harry, right? Um, but to see them being human was uh, another thing altogether, you know, and it's like, and they were very human. <laughs> you know, I saw some, you know, crazy moments, Um and, but it, it was, um, it took a long time, you know, it wasn't till 83 before we recorded our first album there. And the reason that they did that was because they were getting calls from other record companies saying, yeah, the rumors are that you guys have got Choir Boys signed, you know. And they go, Yeah, yeah, we do, you know. And so eventually George came in and said, Okay, guys, I think we better record an album, you know, because they were getting so much pressure from outside and the band was becoming so popular live. And that, was something that George helped us do because he helped nurture the band and, you know, give us, you know, direction and focus and, and, and an understanding of how to work with an audience, how to love an audience, and what show business was about. And so the combination of show business, great music, and I call it show business because you are on stage and you are entertaining. It doesn't matter whether you're wearing a schoolboy uniform or a monkey outfit. Or you know or throwing fish at the audience, which is the advice that George gave Doc Neeson to do to the audience. He said uh, he said, Yeah, Doc, throw fish at the audience. And Doc went, What? He goes, throw fish at the audience. So Doc went and bought a whole bucket of fish and threw them at the audience. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, right, what I discovered about and this is basically through George's um lessons and you know instructions his guidance was that the audience doesn't remember if you played great they don't remember um, even if you you know look great what they remember is either the things that went wrong or the things that were exceptionally bizarre and I've always held that close is that um, I look forward to something going wrong on stage because that's when you know the audience. Uh, will go, what the hell's going on, man? It's like with radio. When something goes wrong, everybody starts listening. When it's just normal, you know, monotone drivel coming out of radio, people turn it off and put it on something else. So George was always a great advocate of doing crazy stuff on stage to get attention. He loved it. In July
1: 1983, the Choir Boys released their debut self-titled album through Alberts and DMI. The producer was Jim Manzi. Having already built up a solid following on the live pub scene, the album was well received, making it to number 19. The first single released was Never Gonna Die and the song reached number 30. It's one of life's great moments for any musician, the first time they hear one of their songs blasting out of the radio.
2: Yeah, that was um, driving up, uh, I don't know what the street is, but it was coming from Bondi Beach up to uh, Bondi. Uh, And I was with my now ex-wife, right, and we had Triple M on. Was it Triple M then or was it? Yeah, it was, right, yeah. And she pointed at the radio right and on comes never going to die and i turned it up and i thought wow that's really interesting you know <laughs> that you know uh, hearing yourself on the radio for the first time was really quite a uh, remarkable experience um and it was a, it was good it, it's a good moment you know it's like you go wow this is i've all my life i've heard everybody doing it, the cretins clearwood acdc led zeppelin the Beatles you know, the kinks, uh, whoever on the radio. And that's the, that's the persona that you knew back then, you know, is that and particularly with new music, radio used to play new music. They don't anymore. Uh, music is broken in other ways through um, the internet, through YouTube, through different mediums. It's very rare that radio will, as a principle or practice, play new music whereas they used to do it all the time. Um, and there we were on the same uh, platform as all these greats like the Rolling Stones and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and what have you. And I go, wow, I'm actually hearing myself and my band on the radio. It was an amazing moment.
1: With the success of Never Gonna Die and the Choir Boys debut album, the band was certainly on the up, and they'd been chosen as a support band for Cole Chisel's The Last Stand Farewell Tour. After playing before Chisel on the opening show of the tour, the choir boys suddenly came to a shuddering halt when Mark suffered every singer's worst nightmare, rupturing his vocal cords and being told that without complete rest his days of fronting a rock band were over.
2: I'm susceptible to things like Aspro um, or Aspirin, Um, and so I don't take them anymore. But it wasn't Aspirin, it was uh, I was drinking milk um, at that time, or, you know, just normally and I'm allergic to milk, and it caused me to, you know, uh, lose my voice, da, da 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 So I went to a doctor about allergies, and she gave me this uh, medication, um, which has a side effect of potential voice loss or rupturing of blood vessels in, in vocal cords and or thinning of blood vessels. Now, it uh, really shouldn't have been recommended, but, hey, things happen. And, you know, I, you know, the voice went and it was really quite bad um, because we were doing a divinals gig that next night after we'd done Cold Chisel. Um, and then I went to the specials the, the week after that and the special said, you can't talk for... You can't sing for three months. You can't – no, you can't talk for three months. You can't sing for a year or two years, something like that, you know. It was pretty extreme. Anyway, I took some Aspro because um, I had a hangover when I was a bit of a drunk in the 90s, and I was, you know, uh, this is after the gig. I mean, I had it during the day, the Aspro, finished the gig, and then I sneezed, right, and then my voice was, oh, and I did it again because the – um, aspro thin the blood vessels um, and as a consequence, same uh, vocal cord bang right went to a specialist at the recommendation of Ian Moss and um, this guy just said look uh, just don't don't talk don't even whisper, whisper for two weeks you'll be fine and he was right and that's basically all I had to do when it first happened but we didn't know that.
1: Gaining the support gig on Cold Chisels' Farewell Tour was a major coup for the choir boys. The tour was named Chisels' Last Stand and it almost turned out to be Mark's Last Stand as well.
2: Yeah, that was a bummer, you know, because, um, I mean, it was ridiculous think that Cold Chisel was breaking up. Uh, but, you know, you being in the band, uh, being in Cold Chisel at times wouldn't have been easy. Um, a lot of different personalities there, but it was... Um, It was a shame they were breaking up because I thought they were just, you know, at their peak and really doing well and, you know, some amazing songs coming out. Um, And then to only do the one show that we did um, uh, was really was a bummer because it was um, just, uh, you know, nothing after that for two years basically. Um, And, uh, you know, had it gone well? I don't know. You know, had I not lost my voice, I don't know what would have occurred. I don't know, um, but it you know it put a, a you know a nail in the coffin for that situation. Um, and you know, we had to rebuild history. Basically, we had to rebuild the band, rebuild the vibe, and get it back up and running. Um, and you know, it was hard work, but we did it. And I really look back on it with a great deal of satisfaction.
1: Despite blowing out his voice and seeing the band's future disappear before his very eyes, Mark never gave up hope that the Choir Boys would make it back again. Lead guitarist Brad Carr left the group and he was replaced by Brett Williams. The band may have been down for the count, but they were certainly not out. In fact, the best was yet to come.
2: An agent friend of ours, Robbie Williams, who used to uh, partly own the Harbour Agency and Frontier Touring, and he called me up and he said, hey, ma'am, what are you doing? You know, like, let's have a talk. I want to manage the band. Um, and from that point on, it was just a resurgence. Um, and then we uh, we moved away, probably unfortunately from and went to Mushroom. Um, uh, and, of course, Robbie Williams, the manager agent I mentioned before, was associated with Mushroom through Michael Ganinski. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, uh, that's how um, – the three years later, run to paradise and big bad noise uh eventuated. And, you know, the rest is history, you know. So it's it's amazing. You're sitting there in the doldrums going, I really didn't know what I was gonna do with myself, you know. Um and uh, you know, all of a sudden you get a phone call. Um and everything changes. And it's just like that. Everything can change in a moment. Um, particularly in the in the music industry. It's uh really a lot of fun like that, very unpredictable. The creation of Run to
1: Paradise was a slow burn. The origins of the song grew out of Mark Jamie with Brad Carr, who also gets a writing credit on the song.
2: Yeah, well, Brad Carr's the original guitarist, and the original sitting, which was down in Studio 3 at Albert's, I come up with a chorus, but I didn't really have uh, the verses such. And we, like, There was a different version of it, um, and so Brad was there for that. and. After that period when, you know, I rewrote the song and it was like two years later, I um, basically took out all those old parts and just added in new verse parts. But I had to give Brad some credit because he was there in the the first instance, if you will. But it was was the music that came first. With Run to Paradise it was the music and then I modified it and then, you know, started to... Talk about in the lyrics, um, all in a space of twenty minutes, with the band playing the riff over and over again in front of me, writing the lyrics out. Um, it was all about life on the Northern Beaches, and you know the the misspent youth that existed there, which I saw was like um, an amazing place. The Northern Beaches, as I said, there were so many positive things about it, but then to see such a waste of talent and energy that went on there. Um, so I had to include that in the song, and it's all little vignettes of people that I've, I've known and, you know, little bits of them, even if they've just got a couple of words, you know, all stuck in there. So, it's um, yeah, uh, it's really encompassing my, oof, being a teenager going in my 20s living on a northern beaches, that's what it's about.
1: He saw those around him trying to find paradise by getting out of it, looking for paradise in the bottom of a bottle.
2: Paris, was just getting out of it, getting drunk, getting stoned. You know, it was like that's what they did all the time. You know, and I was like, and I, you know, then I was a teetotaler. You know, even when I wrote the song, I barely drank. You know, so it was like, you know, I used to watch all these guys getting stoned and drunk, and I go, oh my god, you know, it was just unbelievable you know, the amount of alcohol that people on the northern beaches used to drink, but part of the culture. And, um, yeah, Paradise was definitely, you know, getting out of it, you know, but they were already in Paradise. It was so much fun up there, right? But, yep, they had to go for one extra.
1: When Mark rewrote Run to Paradise a couple of years after it first became a song, it suddenly all came together.
2: When I was listening to the chorus, Um, I was in Curl Curl, and, you know, oddly enough, you know, maybe that twigged me off, I don't know, about the lyrics, you know, because, you know, because all I had for the lyrics is you don't want anyone,
3: you don't want anyone.
2: Da-da-da, I didn't have the rest of it, you know, so that was, you know, two years later, that all fell into place.
1: As Mark mentioned, the narrative of the song is an amalgamation of many different people he'd known. One story is how Jenny came to be now
2: immortalised in the song. Jenny is a girl named Jenny Weber who used to work at David Jones, Mall, and I was working at Fleming's Fabulous Foods, and I remember seeing this girl walking around the corner and going into the staff entrance, David Jones, and she was, you know, it was in her 60s, right? She was incredible. She had long legs, mini skirt, long brown hair, you know, beautiful young lady. She was just well, girl. She was beautiful. Um and I was mad about it. So eventually somebody told me there was a job available as a window dresser David Jones. So I um I got the job over there to meet up. And um, um as soon as I spoke to her I fell out of love with her. <laughs> you know? And so it was the end of that, you know. Um but it was, you know, I had to include her, but it wasn't so much her. It was it was her by name, but it was also a whole lot of girls that I knew on the northern beaches at that time and the the way that they lived and what they thought.
1: The longevity of Run to Paradise has seen it become one of the anthem songs of
2: the 80s. It's a freak of nature, you know, and, and, um, and I, I've always described it like this. It's a child and you give birth to it and you nurture it, you know, and you da 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 And then you're done, right? Your influence over it is no more. Then you release it to the public and it's a runaway child at that point. And they either hate it or they like it or they love it or they do what they do with, you know, Run to Paradise and they make it part of, it's already part of Australian culture, you know, And, and I don't, if I'm sounding arrogant about that, I don't mean to. It's just that it really is weird how people have loved it so much you know like talking to joe came and leary once you know and he goes i go man you've got such a plethora of songs there's so many great songs you know from the you know the black sorrows back to jojo on the falcons you know jojo's Seven on the falcons um and it, you know it's like and he goes yeah but your one song outsells all of mine." <laughs> So it is weird, you know, um, but you know, and I'm 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 grateful for it. I really, I really appreciate it, and I like the fact that um, I'm not cynical about it at all. i still love performing the song, and I love the way people respond.
1: The B-side to "Run to Paradise" was "Struck by Lightning." Run to Paradise also made the American charts, coming in at number 75 on the Billboard Hot 100. The song proved to be hugely popular on college radio stations across the United States. On the mainstream rock charts, Run to Paradise reached number 33. While the song may not have been a mega hit in the US, the song was popular enough for Mark to have one of his own Hollywood moments when he was in the States.
2: The first time I heard it was um, on radio. Uh, I was in- a shop called The Retail Slut, and that was on Melrose Avenue uh, in Los Angeles, and it wasn't until I read Slash's book, Slash, of course, from Guns N' Roses, um, and I could never understand why I loved his guitar playing so much, and when I read the book, I realised he was born in England, which had everything to do with it, but, um, and I'm not saying that English guitarists are better than Americans. Yes, I am, but anyway, uh, he um, mentions The Retail Slut, because for quite a while there, they had the top hat in there, right? And, the, you know, the one that he wears. So, you now the configuration of the shop was that you would walk in the door on the left-hand side of the shop and there was a window on the right, uh, you know, when you walk in the front. And then the shop was in you know, there. I used to buy stuff there all the time. It was great, right? Um, and Slash apparently saw the top hat, right, but he didn't have any money. so. He got to the door, reached in the window, snatched the hat and ran out with it. (laughs) And so that was his first top hat that he used to wear, you know. Uh, And I was like, wow, the retail slut, that's amazing. You know, it's gone now, you know. Uh, Hasn't been there for years. So, you know, but the point being is went in there once and Run to Paradise came on. I went, bloody hell, I'm on Melrose Avenue Los Angeles, listen to one of my songs, right? I thought, this is incredible, what an incredible moment. So, yeah, you know, when, when that happens, you go, yeah, that's a really great vibe.
1: Throughout their career, the Choir Boys have had the opportunity to tour alongside huge international bands like Deep Purple, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard and Cheap Trick.
2: One of the most memorable for me was on a personal level and that had to be Def Leppard. Um, And I'm not a fan of the band. I never was, right? But those guys were just the best bunch of people that I've ever met in entertainment. You know, they were down to earth, funny, um, interested. Uh, You could have a conversation with them. Um, So Joe Elliott and Vivian Campbell were just, you know, the best blokes and, you know, the drummers whose name escapes me was a really cool guy as well. They were just really good people um, and, and I just, I loved that, you know, and, it, you know, touring with like lots of Australian bands but, you know, like Bon Jovi and, you know, Cheap Trick are the best guys as well. They're just fantastic. But the guys from Bon Jovi, you know, um, I think it was David Byron, Byron the uh, keyboard player, he was cool. But uh, we only had one conversation with the bass player who whose name escapes me from Bon Jovi and we were just about to go on stage and he was standing there and he goes, hey, what's happening, guys? And we were like too shy to say anything. We were like, well, and he goes, well, I guess there's nothing happening. <laughs> <I just laughs> we about to go on stage. And I felt really bad, but I never got to apologise, you know, um, to him about that. But, um, you know, the – there have been some really incredible bands, you know, that we work with. Uh, Deep Purple was one that, you know, always remember as being a, a bunch of really good guys, you know, and, and um, it's funny, the bigger they are, quite often the more normal they are and the ability to have a normal relationship with them. It's really, you know, I've had some wonderful moments.
1: In 1988, the band's second album, Big Bad Noise, was released by Mushroom Records. Produced by American Jim McGee and Peter Blyton, the album reached number two and was certified double platinum. It has now gone on to sell over 150,000 copies. Another single from Big Bad Noise that has become a fan favourite is Boys Will Be Boys. The song made the charts and it peaked at number 12. Radio programmers, Run to Paradise has very much stayed in vogue and is one of the most played Australian songs on FM rock stations. It has also had a recent resurgence with McDonald's using the song for one of their major advertising campaigns.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the guys, as the guys said, you could have been a cooler company, but the point is that um, while, you know... The band's not working at the moment. McDonald's are paying for my existence while I'm, you know, uh, in isolation. So thank you very much, McDonald's.
1: Music and television commercials now work hand in hand. Long gone is the view that a band has sold out if one of their songs is used in an advertising campaign.
2: I thought that, you know, one of the best selling outs was Screaming Jets when they sold um, uh, better to... Uh, to some company, right, and this is like in the early 90s, right, and they were really like gun-ho proud of it, right, Uh, and because they were just thumbing up their, you know, they were basically against everything that was established in music. That's why I love the Jets so much. They were just so different and individual, and they went straight away, bang, they sold one of their songs to an ad. They go, up you, you know, we're just just doing this anyway, you know. (laughs) Love it.
1: One band that impressed Mark the first moment he saw them was Divinals, fronted by the late rock goddess Chrissy Amphlett.
2: Christina was, um, Chrissy was, I guess, you know, and from what I understand, I mean, I knew her, but I didn't really know her, right? Um, and even though she was smiling at me and pulling on my, um, no, wait for it, on uh, my braces right, on my, because I was wearing overalls, and she goes, do you like our new song, Mark? Um, that's about as friendly as we got. Um, but um, she was kind of insecure because she was in a male dominated industry. And, you know, you had uh, cultures or uh, ACDC, as I said, all these bands, In Excess, da da da, Rose Tattoo, and it goes on and on and on. The classic appreciation of what divinals were was I was talking to Angry angry anderson about it and he, he's you know and i said yeah i know that she's was you know insecure about you know all the men and she was a woman he said but what she didn't understand is that she was better than all of us <laughs> and she was she was the best she was the most amazing in the moment performer she was incredible um an incredible singer incredible performer and I still remember the first time I saw them Tuesday night at the D.Y. Hotel and it was like, oh, this can't be happening. You know, this is that nobody can perform like this. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So, yeah, we admired them. I I loved them. I just thought they were spectacular, wonderful band and richly deserved that they became successful overseas. Um, and it's a shame that they didn't see, the overseas market didn't see the early incarnations of the band because that was when they were really, really great.
1: Run to Paradise was released in October 1988 and it reached number three on the singles charts. Sydney DJ Nick Skitz released a remix of the song in 2004 and it became a hit all over again. Credited as Nick Skitz vs Choir Boys, Run to Paradise went to number one on the dance charts and it also reached number 16 on the mainstream Aria singles charts. Okay, that's enough of the talk. He is run to paradise by the choir boys. Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie songs. Thanks to Mark for your time, and thanks to the Choir Boys for the music.
0: Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Micros Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know